Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And before we go any further, let's again pray. Our gracious Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we continue to come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring that your Holy Spirit would teach us all things and bring all things into our remembrance, that we hear particularly your word as, as it goes forth. We would pray that you would take your word, apply it to our hearts, help us to, to learn about you, learn about how you are leading and guiding us and what you expect of us, how we are to, to live our life moment by moment, and, and then help us to be pleasing to you in our thoughts, in our activities, in, in our motives, and uh, in every aspect of our lives. Glorify yourself. Amen. Okay. I was, uh, Pastor asked me uh, last week actually to, to preach this week, uh, although he was hoping to be here, like I said, and, and uh, so we'll keep, we will keep praying. I've, one of my concerns was the, uh, the recuperation from how bad, how tough this medicine is, and uh, praise the Lord how strong Terry is, but uh, uh, medication like that is is uh, is a rough thing. Anyway, I was pondering all week about what exactly I'm going to was going to speak on. I wanted to, I thought about uh, preaching on. Uh, a, basically a continuation of what I did a couple of weeks ago. And Joni had an idea of uh, one of her, one of her uh, best, one of her most important biblical hit, uh, heroes is Daniel. And she wanted me to speak about how Daniel could live such a godly life in the middle of a pagan society. Because if you haven't noticed, we sort of live in a pagan society. And uh, there was Daniel, all against his will, uh, thrust into this position, and yet he prospered. But I'm not preaching that either. <laughs> because, uh, you know, this was my, this was my uh, traveling week, and so I was otherwise occupied a lot this week. So I dug out a sermon that I had, I had preached some time, a number of years ago anyway, and it's, it's basically I was preaching through the book of Exodus and uh, started talking about um, the Exodus and, and the Lord's relationship with Israel and really the old covenant that uh, the Lord made with Israel and, and Mount Sinai and, and the relationship that they had with the law and what relationship we have with the law. It's important for Christians to deal with the, with the issue, what is our relationship with the law? I mean, Paul tells us that uh, um, we're, not, we're not under the law but under grace, and what exactly does that mean? And, and does that mean we're free to do whatever we want to do? Well, of course not. But first of all, understand this. When, when the Bible talks about the law, it could actually be talking about several different things. It could be talking about the whole Old Testament. It could also be speaking about just the first five books of the Old Testament, and, and in, particularly in Jewish tradition, that the, they divided the Old Testament up into three sections. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And the law being the first five books of Moses. It also could be speaking about the very specific sections of the first five books that deal with the specific commandments that God gave to his people. And this is really what we want to focus on today. And, and I thought we could continue this the next few times whenever the Lord 
uh, gives me opportunity to speak, talk about the Ten Commandments. How often do you hear less, uh, sermons on the Ten Commandments? And I thought we'd take one at a time. But particularly from the New Testament, we find out the law, and this, is, this you have to say carefully, the law was designed to draw God's people to himself. You say that very carefully because of the way it did it. In Galatians chapter 3.24, Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster or our, our guide to bring us to Christ. Now, what, the, what exactly does that mean? And the law does that in various ways. First of all, it reveals the righteousness of God. in a very practical, down-to-earth way. When the law says, thou shalt not, that means right there, you don't go any further. It also created a standard of righteousness by which no man could attain. Unto which, I should say, no man can attain. You know what else it does? Something that Paul reminds us very well. It draws a line in the sand. It provides a temptation for us. So that the sin nature dares to cross. You ever see two guys and don't you dare cross that line. Or what's maybe even a better illustration is see the, see the little sign on the back of a park bench, wet paint, do not touch. What's your first temptation to do? <laughs> you touch it, right? Well, that's what the law says. Paul, sa Paul tells us, I didn't know covetousness until the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then I coveted all over the place. When the law says don't do it, it makes us want to do it all the more. Like I often say, it makes sin sinnier. If there is such a word, it makes it all the worse. Because it not only adds, you know, we're breaking the righteousness of God by breaking the law. But now that we have the law, we have a standard that we know is right. And as Paul in the middle of Romans chapter 7 says, that which I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, that I do. And that's the law. Thus, anybody under the law would know nothing but condemnation. And that's where the, per, the whole perversion of, of the Pharisees got, got so tangled up and so messed up because they, they would teach, if you did this and 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 this, all 746 of them, you'll be acceptable to God. And they were so well practiced at it that Paul could rightly say in Philippians chapter 3 that as touching the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. Until Christ came crashing into his life. And that's when he realized what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. God never intended it as a means of salvation. God intended it to show us just how sinful we are so that He can reveal His graciousness to us in the salvation that He provides. 
One other aspect to the law is that it was the core of the Sinaitic covenant. The covenant that he made with Israel when he, when he brought them out of, of Egypt. He wanted to make Israel unique among the, the nations of the world. And as such, we find out in, from chapter 19 and uh, Exodus 19 and a few other places that obedience to the law was the means by which Israel could maintain their presence and their prosperity within the promised land. But since it holds, it was the core of the Sinaitic covenant, it holds dominion over those bound by that covenant, and thus it of necessity condemns all under it. Now, somebody might say, well, since we're not bound by the tenets of that covenant, we're not under the law's authority, doesn't that mean that uh, uh, we can do whatever we want? And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. However, inasmuch as it reflects the righteousness of God as an external guide, to how we ought to live, it can show us what God wants. What pleases God? And this is, this is the crux of where I'm, I'm going with this. What is it that you want to do with your life? We just, the song that we just sang, I'll let my words be few, Jesus, I am so in love with you. That needs to be our motive for what we do. And if we love the Lord, is it not what we want to do to please the Lord? Is that not what you want to do for your spouse? Please them? Why? Because you love them. How much more our heavenly spouse, since we're all the bride of Christ? Do we not want to please the Lord in everything that we do? That's, what the, that's the picture that the law gives us. Well, today I want to start looking at the, the commandments itself, and uh, we want to start with the first one. And just, and you probably know this, but the Ten Commandments are divided themselves into two basic sections. The first four deal with our relationship with the Lord. The next six deal with our relationship with other people. And the first one is a very general statement concerning God and the preeminence that he has in our life. I, I, John had no idea when he picked out those songs how well they would go with this sermon. Again, praise the Lord for his, uh, his sovereignty and, and his, his guidance, his providence in this whole thing. Because we serve an awesome God. And the Lord reminds his people of that in this. Look at verse well, we'll start reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Just FYI, the Jews list verse 2 as the first commandment. The problem is it's not a commandment. You get into verse 3, it has the same it has the same structure as the rest of the commandments. But verse 2 is a, is a statement, a fact. Verse 2 gives the background to better understand the commandment. He is Jehovah. He is Israel's God. He is the one who made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He's the one who preserved them down to Egypt, preserved them while they were in Egypt, and brought them out of Egypt after destroying all the gods, all the false gods in Egypt. They owed allegiance to no other god. So he says, Thou shalt have no other God before me or beside me. Now, have you ever gotten a little philosophical, I guess, and, and sat down and asked why? Why did God do all this? What's his purpose? Did God have to, to make everything? Did God have to, to create us? Did God have to order history the way he has? Why does he do that? Now let me just tell you my answer to, the, to why and the entire purpose of creation and redemption is so that God can have beings that can freely love him that's the whole thing God can create beings who have the ability to choose the intelligence to choose knowledgeably and the ability the emotional ability to love intellect will and emotions we often talk about that as one of the basic as three of the basic aspects of of being a person god gave us intelligence so that we can com comprehend even in the slightest bit that, that we can, we can comprehend God. Certain little tidbits. We certainly can't, in the proper sense of the term, comprehend, I mean, cover everything, God. But we can understand parts of God. And we have a choice. We have the ability to choose. And the ability to choose presupposes opportunities to choose. That means we can choose wrongly. And we can choose correctly. The correct choice is always to love Him. To exercise that emotion toward God. But you know, idolatry stands in the, in the way with that. Because anything that takes our thoughts and our love away from God is idolatry. You will have no other God besides me. It stands in the way of the redemptive purpose when another God is chief in the affections of God's people. And what's particularly obnoxious about it is, are there any other gods that exist? I mean, in actuality, is there any other god other than the true God? I mean, we have other gods that are no gods. I mean, there's around, there's around 3,000 of them in Carlisle this weekend. They're all beautiful. Car the 
Corvettes in Carlisle this weekend. But how many of those folks should be in church worshiping the true God? And how many coats of wax have they put on their Corvette? Or how much money have they spent on their Corvette? Well, again, we'll talk about that later. But think about the, the context that the Israelites were in. They were in a, a society of false gods. How, every single one of those plagues that God brought on Egypt was a direct attack on one of the false gods in Egypt. And what really... Well, there are no real gods to worship. So in reality, idolaters choose nothing over the true God who loves them. I'd rather follow this. I'd rather follow that. I'd rather follow the other thing. I'd rather do anything but truly worship and give myself wholly to please the Lord God of heaven. But what makes matters worse than that, as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 10.20, that behind the false gods, they're really demons. But I say the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. So people worshiping what they call other gods can be worshiping demons. And I wouldn't even doubt that there was a, a demon called Ray in Egypt or there was a demon called Zeus in Greece or there was a demon called Thor in Sweden. My ancestors worshipped, although I think Thor actually came from one of the ancestors, uh, one of the uh, descendants of Japheth. Uh, there are, there are uh, Swedish genealogies that uh, include that name all the way back to Japheth. By the way, pre-Christian genealogies that go all the way back to Japheth. Very interesting topic. But at any rate... Um, What did, what did Israel have? What did Israel do? What did, where did Israel come from? Why did God give this command? Well, again, they're coming out of an exceedingly idolatrous nation. All they had known all their lives were the idols of Egypt and the training that they would get from their elders of the true God. But they would see all around them all the statues and all the the religious worship of idols. And where were they headed? To the promised land that was filled with, with idolaters. People who worshiped Moloch or, or Baal. As we mentioned above, God wanted people who would freely worship Him. He also wanted to protect His people from all the ungodliness that, that idolatry created. Now, we don't want to get into too many details but because, as Paul says, it's a shame to even speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But what happened when people worshipped Moloch? Child sacrifice? What happened in Greece when uh, the, particularly in Corinth, when people worshipped uh, uh, Aphrodite? Prostitution as, as a as a uh, 
institution. That was a way to worship Aphrodite. And on and on it goes. God wanted to keep, from, keep them from that. He wanted to teach them to focus on Him. So He wanted to stop all the influence of the idolatry. Turn with me to uh, uh, Deuteronomy 13. In verse 6, the Lord had gave some instructions about how to deal with idolaters. And let me know if you think God is serious about this. Verses 6 through 10. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter or your, the, the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you, you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to them or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, for you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to, to put him to death. <coughs> and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because you, he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you think God was serious about the restricting idolatry? Do you think he had held a dim view of idolatry? Turn again to, to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 in verses 2 through 10. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, <coughs> and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to, the, to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones." On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. You think God is serious about idolatry? Not... Uh, uh, pleasant topics to, to speak on. But God expects His people to love Him, to worship Him. That's the force of the law. Basically speaking, This is a restatement of, of what Jesus called the greatest commandment of all. What's the first and greatest commandment? Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and all thy mind. If Deuteronomy 6.5 is true in our lives, the first commandment will be as well. And that's, that's the crux of the message right there. If the, if the Lord, if when we sing, Jesus, I am so in love with you, if that's true, that's the first, com first commandment. That's... Commandment number one. 
And this is one of the first tests of our thought about our relationship with the law. And again, someone might object. Well, well, since we don't, since we don't live under the law, does that mean we can have we can have some other God? Well, first of all, by saying that we do not, we are not. Uh, under or subject to the law does not mean that we are free to break the law. We mean that the law's authority is not the reason for our obedience. We have a totally different motivation. I've mentioned the old covenant several times, the Sinaitic covenant. If you turn to Jeremiah 31, 31, you find out about the new covenant. Not the old covenant which, which I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. Which covenant they break, saith the Lord. But in the new covenant, I, what will happen? He'll put his law into our hearts. He, can, he transforms us from the inside out doesn't take the outside requirements and enforce them upon us, but creates what He wants within us so that it flows out naturally. And this motivation is what shows really, that we're not under the law. Even though we might be conformed to the law, we're not under the law because the motivation is completely different. How can we find real fulfillment? Well, this is one of the, one of the things that I... I, I was witnessing to a fellow one time, and uh, he he was telling me, "Well, well, you can, you know, you can, you can. God can hold God holds you in your hand, but you can jump out. He believes he can lose his salvation." I said, "You mean you've tasted that the Lord is good? You've seen the salvation that He's wrought in your life." He's transformed you. He's changed you. He's given you a new life and new, new hope, new desires, new goals. A whole new creature. And you want to get away from that? Well, I really don't want to. Well, that's the point. The new covenant, the, the new transformation that God does in every single true believer's life changes us from the inside out. and reveals the forgiveness that he has. One of the first experiences that I ever recognized as, as a Christian illustrates this very well. I was saved on April 28, 1976. I was working in Philadelphia as an aircraft mechanic at the time. And... That was, of course, the year of the United States Bicentennial. And it was a big party on, in uh, uh, Ju July of uh, 1976. And I was invited, uh, just slightly over two months old as a Christian, uh, I was invited to one of my co-workers' parties uh, just, just to celebrate the 4th of July. And I went, and I... I did enjoy myself to a certain point with my co-workers. You know, I enjoyed them. And, but I got home and I, there's really something missing here. What is it? What, what was missing? What was missing is the Lord. All the, all the folks that I work with enjoy None of them acknowledged the true God. None of them 
truly love him. And I thought, I'd rather go to a celebration where the Lord is central. Not that there was anything wrong with, with the party that I went to. Other than there was a different motive, a different direction, a different desire, a different goal. The thing that I missed was the expression of real, heartfelt love to the Lord God of heaven. And now having a few years to think about that, I see that as, as the Lord working in me as proof that I'm not under the law. I don't follow the Lord because the law says you will have no other God before me. I follow the Lord because I love Him. And that's what I want in my life. That's the different motivation. There was nothing forcing me to seek that fellowship with God. It was a desire from within. Now as Christians, we know that there are dangers. There are dangers that we must avoid. And while the gross idolatry of Egypt or Greece or Rome or, or any of those, you know, we, I, we don't have many statues to Zeus or, or any the, of the false gods. But when I was asking about, earlier in the sermon, about are there any false gods? I saw some people saying, yes, there are. Not personality-wise, but in how we hold on to things, yeah. Things, material possessions are, are big in our, in our society. Anything that we, rev that we reveal through our actions or where we spend our money that is more important to us than our relationship with the Lord. That's the idol. Sports. I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. One of the, one of the uh, churches where I... I uh, preached at one time out, out near Pittsburgh. Um, one, of the, one of the elders of the church said, well, I won't, this is on Saturday night. We had a fellowship before I preached. Well, I won't see you tomorrow. I have tickets to the Steelers game. Really? It was several months ago when Ron was preaching, he was talking about was a fellow who, who wanted to know if there was a golf course and in heaven or things like knowledge the desire to, to get more and more knowledge as Paul says uh, uh, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth that's what people do so often, position, power, leisure, all these idols that can so distract our minds. And it can be, and it can be very subtle. We can get so involved in work. We can get so involved in work that we don't bother preparing a sermon for the Sunday that we know we're going to preach. We can get so involved with our family that they become more important than the person of the Lord. 
Is there anything wrong with family? Is there anything wrong with work? Of course not. Until it becomes more important than our love for the Lord. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul reminds us, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The desire for things. Now, how do we avoid this type of idolatry, which is so prevalent in our society? Well, the way to do it is to fill our hearts with more love for the Lord. Yesterday, I was reading Spurgeon, and he quoted uh, Ephesians 3.17, just the phrase, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And he said this, Observe the words that he may dwell in your heart, that best room of the house of manhood, not in your thoughts alone, but in your affections, not merely in the mind's meditations, but in the heart's emotions. We should pant after the love to Christ of a most abiding character, not a love that flames up and then dies out into the darkness of a few embers, but a constant flame fed by sacred fuel like the fire upon the altar which never went out. This cannot be accomplished except by faith. Faith must be strong or love will not be fervent. The root of the flower must be healthy or we cannot expect the bloom to be sweet. And as I was thinking about his meditation, it, it just it reminded me how much of life is particularly living in, in the society we live. The events of life distract us and take us away from, from our thoughts of the Lord. Even in good activities, necessary activities, obligations that we have to fulfill. How many of them draw us away? Then difficulties strike in life. Cancer. Widowhood. Can that draw a person away from the Lord? You bet. The death of a loved one. Or it could make us draw closer to the Lord depending on where you put the pressure do you allow the pressure to get between you and your relationship with the Lord if that is true that will push you away from the Lord if you keep the Lord close and allow the pressure to surround you that will do nothing but push the Lord that much closer to you I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In our culture, or in our context, He is the Lord our God who has redeemed us from our slavery to sin, from the condemnation that we also earnestly deserve. You will have no other gods before me. What is our desire? What is our hope and dream? Lessons for our lives, number one. As Christians, we are never bound by the law. The law does not hold authority over us. However, because the law does reflect the righteousness of God, if out of love for the Lord we truly want to please Him, our life will greatly reflect the law. 
If we really love the Lord, we'll want to please Him. If we want to please Him, we'll follow what He desires. He desires in very many ways what the law describes. Number, number two, never, ever, ever think that if you obey, obey the law, what the law prescribes, that you'll be acceptable to God. That's true for, for salvation, and it's true for the Christian walk. Well, I have, to, I have to, to go to church and I have to give the money. I have to do this and that and that in order to show my love for the Lord. Is that really a love for the Lord? Or, that just, or does the love come first and that's just the expression of the love? First of all, why you never think that you can, if you obey the law, that you'll be acceptable to God? First of all, you can't obey it. It's impossible. Nobody ever has. Nobody ever will. But second of all, just like the Pharisees, to the extent that you conform to your understanding of the law, to that same extent, you'll be proud of your accomplishments and you think you've earned salvation. But what is it that Paul says in, in Philippians? Those things that were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. What, were, what were, I thought were debits to my account were really debits. And my accounting was all screwed up. It's really the exact opposite of the gospel of salvation. God brings us to the point where we realize, I can't save myself. Lord God, I need you. I can't please you, Lord, as I walk as a Christian. I need you. Number three, we are immersed in a society that idolizes anything other than the true God. Idolizes people, talented people, physically attractive people, capable athletes, those people that are powerful and wield authority or... or uh, uh, just have a, a bearing of authority about them. Material things, cars, boats, computers, houses, land, all the stuff that we can attribute. Remember what pastor says, it all goes back in the box when you, when you leave anyway. It's kind of like the, the monopoly money. You don't put it in your wallet it goes back in the box how about leisure or the opposite of leisure sports one thing to do to test ourselves this is, and this is, this is where I fail miserably all the time when I, when I apply this test to myself When your mind is not occupied with the responsibilities of work, what do you dwell on? What do you think about? Does it immediately go to, to the Lord? Or like, like Larry said last week, are you thinking right now about uh, where you're going to eat lunch after I finish talking? Or where you, what you have other responsibilities to do? to do after the service 
Do you know what money, one of my greatest desires is? When I'm having my quiet time during the day, to have the desire, oh, i got to quit and, and go out here instead of I want to make sure I get this done before I go on to all the other responsibilities that I have to get done during the day. I want to have the draw of the Lord stronger to fellowship with Him. And then I have to drag myself away because I know, yeah, in order to please the Lord, I'm going to have to do these things as well. Another test. In great measure, what we spend our money on indicates where our priorities are. Where do you where do you give where do you spend your money? It's another little indicator of what's really important to you. Hopefully when you test yourself like this, and there's probably a lot of other little tests you can do, when you test yourself like this, it drives you to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. I can't do it apart from you. And number four, Remember, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. If you do that, commandment number one is fulfilled. It's just doing that that becomes difficult. Let's pray. Our Lord God, you have given us all things and, and led us on a path by your Spirit to, to seek to desire your honor and glory. We would pray, Heavenly Father, that you might enable us to do that. You know very well, you know our frame, you remember that we are dust that because we're, we are such sinners, we're not given to glorifying you. We pray, Lord God, that you would fill our hearts, that you would fill every aspect of our being, that we might live for you. We can do all things through Christ, which strengthens us, but we can, without him, we can do nothing. Help us to seek Him. And we know that you will, you will glorify Yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take care.